This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? Hello, I'm Ray Harkins, and you are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Welcome to you. Yeah, I'm looking at you who's driving the car, or maybe maybe you're doing a little bike ride or a, a run. I don't care what you're doing. I'm just glad you're here in this digital room, this digital hangout session that is known as 100 Words or Less, which I already said. But what do we do here? We talk about independent music. We talk about the people, or we talk to the people who make up this awesome scene that we exist in, whether it's hardcore, punk, indie rock, whatever it is, as long as it has that DIY backbone, that's what I care about. And, you know, I've gotten feedback in the past that it's like, you know, oh, why don't you cover more hardcore bands or why don't you cover more emo bands or whatever? Like, why don't you just stick to one thing? First of all, that's not fun for me personally. I have always listened to a bunch of different styles of music. And even though at the end of the day, I am always going to call myself a punk or a hardcore kid, that is, uh, that is not something that I just want to stick to. And today is a prime example of that. So who is the guest today? You can read, so you can probably see it, but Jake Brennan, he is the host of an incredible podcast, which I urge you to listen to called Disgraceland, which is basically the intersection of true crime and music, which there is a ton of stuff there. Like just, you know, does I just listened to an episode he did about Bob Marley, which was incredible done stuff on Van Morrison, just some of the sordid details of these uh, musicians' lives that uh, really, really are incredible. So go listen to his podcast. Not right now, like maybe afterwards. But uh, I got keyed into him because uh, he was working in the context of my day job with uh, you know podcasts and what have you. And then I was like, I really like the show. I think this dude knows what's up. Dug a little deeper, come to realize he sings for a band that I hold in very high regard called Cast Iron Hike. Cast Iron Hike was a band that uh, released some stuff in the late 90s, uh, one of them being, well, actually the only full length they did called Watch It Burn on Victory Records. And basically they were like this really interesting amalgamation of like metal and post-hardcore. And I just, I love, the record holds up in ways that, most records of that era just just don't. And that record is incredible. And he sang for the band. And I didn't know about that until we connected and I asked him to be on the show and it was just, it was great. So more on, on Jake in a few moments, but you, you know what I'm going to talk about, right? Band merch, right? You need band merch and you need to go to rockabilia.com. Use the code PC Jabberjaw. That will give you 15% off. I don't know if they have any cast iron hike shirts on there. I don't think they do because I, I looked it up. I mean, you know, they haven't made that merch and you know, 20 some odd years, but you will be able to find half a million items from all of your current favorite bands, your old favorite bands, some beanies, hats, whatever it is you need to outfit yourself with. They got it. I love their customer service. I love just, they just care about what they do. You can tell from the way that they send their stuff out. It's quick. It's easy. It's efficient. And I just love it. So please support Rockabilia because uh, they support the show in very, very deep ways. So please go do that. And uh, yeah, like I said, Jake, just a great guy. But um, I, I myself, thank you for asking. I'm doing good. I, I hope you're doing well. The summer is treating you appropriately. I am really excited because uh, I get to the, the summertime tours and shows and warp tour and all the fun stuff that happens in the summer. I am going to go to warp tour. I feel like it's the last year and I would feel really strange if I didn't like 
send it symbolically off. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It just feels weird because I mean, I remember when I went to, I think my first warp tour was probably 94. I want to say, I remember Deftones and quicksand played and it was, uh, in, at the, I want to say the Cal state Dominguez Hills campus. It was in like this weird place where it, it, it was like, I think where they, they do like multiple sports trainings. They had like a, a bike track and, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of who else played. I want to say like orange nine millimeter. <clears throat> I mean, this is, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't like going to warp tour to check out orange nine millimeter, but retrospectively I was like, Oh, that's right. These bands played. Cause yeah, I was just stoked because I got to see pretty sure no effects played pretty sure lag wagon played. And I was just excited that I could sit like basically right in the middle of these two stages and like back and forth just all day, be able to watch awesome, awesome bands. Pretty sure Pennywise played. I was excited about that. So, um, yeah, warp tour. Okay. Just maybe, maybe you just go there. Cause like there, there's actually really good bands playing like heavy bands that you are, you know, probably never would have envisioned playing warp tour, you know, five to seven years ago. But uh, yeah, the heavy stage is like where it's at now on a warp tour. So, um, yeah, go and say goodbye to a great friend, uh, of your summer. I, I, I would venture a guess that most of you listening to this have a very strong memory attached to warp tour and I do as well. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm going. But, um, okay, let's get back to Jake. I I started off my thought process and then got interrupted by (laughs) my own thought process times two. But anyways, uh, Jake, just a great chat. This was super fun for me because cast iron hike, like I said, was a really important band for me just because it started to stretch my own personal listening boundaries of what I would consider, you know, like punk and hardcore. And I was like, this is cool. This dude's singing, not like he's yelling occasionally, but it's like melodic yet heavy. And yeah, Castor and Hike was great. And, uh, what Jake is doing as a creative individual, it's just, it's really inspiring. I just love it because he's been doing stuff in music, doing stuff in advertising and just applying all of his creative energy and principles to different stuff and it's awesome so here's jake and i will talk to you at the when the show's over where i'll tell you who's on next week because man we got some bangers coming up total bangers all right here's jake talk to you again. Like I was mentioning before we were recording, you know, Disgraceland came into my ecosystem via my work. And I was like, oh, wow, like a music and true crime podcast like that. That's cool. And then I heard the first episode before it came out. I was like, oh, wow, like this is uh, like not not like I was expecting it to be terrible. But like, you know, the intentionality behind music stuff sometimes comes across as really like, oh, this person really doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> like, right, right. But I was like, oh, no, this is like, you know, not only well-researched, but you could tell that you are uh, invested in the subject matter. Um, And it also surprised me, too, with the, you know, glut of sort of true crime adjacent shows that there wasn't Mm -hmm. this corner that was already kind of staked out, you know, like I I just I don't know. I was surprised. I was like, oh, yeah, like music does have a weird true crime element to it. Like, were you surprised or like, did you notice that and you wanted to fill that need or was it kind of just like a confluence of these two ideas that were in your head? Um, 
kind of both. It was, I mean, the two ideas came, you know, I, I had the idea and then the clock started ticking. I knew that someone was going to do it. Right. Sort of, I mean, I don't know if anyone else is going to do it, but I was just like, okay, I got to get this done. Uh, I'm really into this idea. <clears throat> Excuse me. And everybody I, I talked to about the idea, the response was like, oh, no shit. Yeah, of course. Like that needs to be a podcast. That needs to be something. Um, so that kind of like, you know, gave me more motivation, but I just knew I wanted to do something in podcasting and I didn't know what, and I was kind of at like the end of my rope professionally. Um, and I really wanted to be able to do something that was creative and I didn't really care about it being a profession, but I knew I just wanted to do something that had some, some sort of like upside, you know, when you have a kid, it's like, you got to be justifying your time. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, you can't just be hanging out in a I microphone, remember. dicking around. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I kind of, you know, and then the, the whole music background that I have, I knew I wanted to tell stories about music and it's an interesting story. I, I was kind of like, you know, kind of like casting about for what I was going to do creatively. And I asked, um, and professionally, and I asked my wife and I asked my, um, creative sort of partner in crime, this guy, Adam Taylor, who I've done a lot of stuff with. He's a producer producer i asked them both i was like if you could hire me to do one job what would it be and they both had the same answer and it was an answer that i'd never ever considered and it was my wife was like i would just hire, hire you to tell stories and i was like well that's not a job you know, <laughs> right I can't, I can't do that and adam was like i'd just pay you to go into the uh, into the vocal booth and just talk you've talked me into some of the stupidest shit in our in our relationship and i was like oh okay well maybe, maybe this podcast thing you know, maybe I need to think about this a little bit because that's how you tell stories in 2018. Right. And then it was sort of, well, what am I going to talk about? And I've always kind of been the guy amongst my friends, whether it was like even this back far back as high school or in bands later uh, as a young adult, where it was just like, I was always the guy who had like these insane stories that I wanted to talk about. Like someone would mention Jerry Lewis. I'd be like, Oh yeah. You know, he killed his fifth wife. And people would be like, no, he didn't. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, yeah, he did. He did. So I had all this kind of like knowledge of these things. And I, I don't know, just, that was sort of it. It was just like, Oh, it's, it's all true. It's all true crime, but it's all music related. And that gives me my own sort of window in that, that can be my own window, my own way into this. And I'll have my own sort of uh, point of view on it. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, 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 I mean, it makes sense. Like, no, no, not only how you're describing it, but then how the show gets kind of laid out, especially in the subject matter of each of the episodes. Where, because um, I think you know, so many people, especially in working in the podcast industry, and then you know, being so interested in music, so many people are you know, either asking me or, you know, uh, I'm giving my opinion on the idea, like why music podcasts haven't like, you know, transcended in the same way that, um, you know, like serial and all the other, you know, massively popular podcasts are out there. It's like, well, cause music is so personal and people like, you know, if you trot something out, like, you know, what you did with like Norwegian black metal, and then you also have an episode about Jerry Lee Lewis, where even though that those different musicians and bands will elicit opinions of people, like it's under the banner of something that is, you know, more narratively speaking, as opposed to a show that is, you know, Hey, we're going to talk about rock and roll and Swedish black metal. People are like, what the hell are you talking? I can't do that. You know? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, Disgraceland isn't really a music 
podcast. I mean, it is, and I definitely thought about why music podcasts didn't work, but it's more a storytelling podcast. And I think there's kind of, there's a bunch of different types of podcasts, but categorically it's like, there's storytelling podcasts and, you know, long form narrative stuff, like the things you mentioned, like serial. And then there's the commentary podcast where it's people just commenting and talking about things. And that's where a lot of the music podcasts fall into that sort of commentary side of things. And often what you get there is it just becomes another sort of stop on a musician's sort of promo tour. So usually when musicians I find are doing interviews on podcasts and those sorts of things, it's, it's all in the service of like hyping something. <laughs> totally. And, and it's not as interesting. Whereas stories, like I don't, I remember telling, I have a friend who's, in the music industry, he's been in the music industry his whole life and he's made a really good living and he has a lot of friends. And I remember telling him this idea and he's like, you can't do that. I'm like, why? He's like, you know, one, it's like, everyone's going to hate you. Like you, you're going to burn all your bridges. I'm like, dude, I, I don't have any bridges. <laughs> like this isn't, like, I don't care. Right. Like this is more interesting to me than I'm not going to be like talking about people I like and respect who I'm friends with because they're not lecherous, murderous creeps. You know what I mean? Totally. So, it's strange. There's, There's, I like telling the story side of it, not as opposed to the commentary side of it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of backing out, but not, you know, not too far away from what we were just talking about with the, you know, once you and I started corresponding and, you know, you were like, oh yeah, you know, I played in bands and, you know, you dropped the cast iron hike. Like, I don't know why I never made the connection. Cause like I mentioned over email to you, I saw you guys play the showcase theater here in Corona with hot water music, which, you know, there was like, you know, negative seven people there. So like, <laughs> I don't, I don't expect you to remember the show per se, but, uh, I just re- I, I don't even know that I've actually been in Corona. <laughs> that's like that's news to me. Or- like I don't doubt it, but I mean some of those shows were just like, oh man, like you're just grinding to get through those tours. Uh, not all of them, but right. I, I remember. The, I remember what I remember about that tour is that band being amazing. Hot Water Music was great. They were oh, a great live band. Totally, and like absolute machines. Like I had the I had the luxury of tour managing a band uh, that was on tour with Hot Water Music, and like you know the the band I was tour managing and myself, we were in our early twenties and watching these guys mm. who were you know adults be a band and just like like you said, just you know melt the faces off people each night, and you're like, right? Oh, so that's how you do it. <laughs> but yeah, 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 uh, totally. But, um, but Cast Iron Hike, I always found, you know, so, uh, you guys are such a weird band, like from, you know, the, the moment that you, you know, started working with, you know, Trustkill and Big Wheel and then signed with Victory, um, like I I imagine, and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong in this, people either really, really loved Cast Iron Hike or they were like, that band is terrible. Like you really probably didn't get, okay. (laughs) So most people, most people reacted violently to it. Okay. Yeah. And it was like, you know, it's interesting. I just, I listened to Gavin from burn on your show and he was, he was a really early supporter of ours. And I mean, to the point of like booking our shows in New York and letting us sleep on the floor of his squad and just like, you know, being a, you know, just great, great advocate. And we kind of had the same attitude he had, which was we, we really wanted to do something different that was inspiring to not only us, but to other people as well. You know, that I get how pretentious that sounds coming out of my mouth right now. But when you're, <laughs> when you're 22 years old, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of an aspirational, it's like a worthy goal to have. And, and even though like I lived with 
guys in mouthpiece and, you know, 10 yard fight was like basically invented in my kitchen and <laughs> recorded at the nice. first incarnation of salad days in Boston. Like those guys were all my friends and, you know, I'm still, I'm still friendly with some of them to this day, but it, it's, you know, it was just kind of like, and we were friends with them and they were, but they were like, you're kind of like, yeah, you know, Kester is cool, but you know, you guys wear leather jackets and, you know, you're singing songs like Steven Tyler. <laughs> it was all in good fun. You know, right. I didn't care. I was just like, well, whatever, you know, like we're, you know, Gavin's into us, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're getting to play with like, you know, the Melvins and, and some of our heroes. So that was, that was all cool. It was good. Right. Right. Well, I'll, I'll dive into more of that experience a little bit later, but the, uh, you know, were you born and raised in the Boston area essentially? Yeah, I was born in central Massachusetts and I grew up in a town called Clinton, Mass. Okay. And, but my parents were split up. So I grew up with my mom, but my dad lived in the city in Boston. Well, he lived in Cambridge and he lived in Newton. So I was kind of like a double kid. I was, you know, week, weekdays going to school in like this little working class mill town in Clinton. And, then, and on the weekends, I was in the city hanging out in the pit at Harvard Square and, you know, mining record stores for whatever I could get my hands on. And that experience was like, it was really, it, I didn't, ex, I didn't realize it at the time, but you know, back before the internet, it was, it was tough to find records, man, and find like new music. And, yeah. and that experience just exposed me to so much stuff. And it, it really caused me to kind of have this attitude of like, it's kind of all good. I was never like a hardcore kid or a punk kid or a metal kid. I was kind of like an everything kid. I was in everything, you know, I was in a metal, I was in a punk, I was in all of it. It just so happened that the guy's making music in my town who were actually doing something were into like the hardcore and punk scene. So that's the type of band that I ended up in. Right. Right. And so, um, there's, there's a lot of strings I want to pull on there. Uh, one was the, uh, I really like that notion of what you're talking about where, um, you know, cause I think most people that have gone through, you know, divorce and have to do the whole split time thing with their parents, um, they do have these two different worlds that they exist in, you know, cause one or both parents, you know, ostensibly move on, get remarried and then, you know, either live in different places. And, uh, I do think it is really interesting to have those dual experiences because, um, yeah, one will be completely different than the other because just of, you know, sheer circumstance. So it's, it's cool that you were experiencing the whole like big city, small city life, uh, you know, in tandem with one another. Mm, yeah, it really, it was, it was a trip and you know, my dad's a musician as well. So his friends and his social group, they were just, they were different. They had a different sense of humor and I didn't really know what that was when I was you know, eight years old or 10 years old or whatever, but you could kind of sense it. And it was, it was a little more sophisticated or whatever. Again, not that it was better. It was just different. And it, the exposure to that in my formative years, I mean, it had a lot to do with what I ended up listening to music wise and what I sort of wanted to seek out musically. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, and you, ha you have a older brother, younger brother. I'm the oldest, so I have a younger brother and I have two younger sisters. Okay. Full house there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. Uh, well, I'm 21 years older than my sister, so I was gone by the time she snuck out. Ah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, sure. That that's definitely a, a generational uh, sister <laughs> or younger sibling, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Uh, so, did, were uh, were you kind of the uh, the typified older child of you know you were uh, rebellious by nature and you know testing the limits of both your your parents, or you know did you kind of not reflect that experience? No, that's it in a nutshell. I was 
completely rebellious from from day one. Um, and all the all the you know generic silly ways, and just also and I ended up getting like because of that, I ended up getting grounded a lot. That was sort of my mom's go to like way to deal with me was just like you're not going out. So I just kind of would sit in my world, my room and my bedroom as like a teenager. And I just had, I was like, okay, this is my, this is my place. If I'm going to be in locked in this place, I'm going to fill it with books and records and I'm going to learn how to draw and play guitar and do all these things that you can, you can do when you're afforded all that time. So in a lot of ways it was kind of a blessing. Um, Cause it made me, I read a lot, man. I like, I read so much at a young age and I was just like really curious about things. And to this day, it's, it's who I am. You know, like this morning I wake up, I come into my studio and I just knock out two hours of reading about John Lennon. And I'm just like, this is my happy place. This is where I want to be. Right. Right. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Um, and then you're, uh, I, were you like, you know, really outgoing because of the rebellious nature? I mean, it sounds like, you know, your, uh, <laughs> your, your friend group and stuff like that, uh, you know, definitely enjoyed, you know, hearing stories from you and stuff like that. Um, or were you kind of, you know, more reserved, but you kind of, and you kind of picked your spots as far as, uh, you know, speaking out, so to speak. I was never afraid to speak out and tell people what I thought, but I was, I always hung out really with older kids and you're, you you kind of have to be deferential to survive in that sort of social situation. So yeah, it's kind of a mix. I would say, you know, I definitely like, I gravitated toward the older kids cause you know, they had, they had things like cars and money for buying pot and records that I didn't have. And you know what I mean? Like those sorts of things. Right. right. Um, but it was, it was, I think you got to have a certain, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta be able to kind of hang in those situations and, and speaking out is part of that. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, especially when you are, uh, kind of, you know, you are fortunate enough to have, you know, cooler, older people that you can, you know, look up to. You definitely don't want to be that, you know, younger punishing kid that's in the group of like, Oh dude, we don't, Jake is just, he's, he's got a good heart, but man, he's annoying to hang out with or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was definitely that too. Okay, I was like, <laughs> I mean, good. I was like definitely like like tagging along with older kids. Even Chris, who was in Castor and Hike, I mean, he's three years older than me. Chris Papecki from he's in Doom Riders now in Wormwood, and I was like, you know, he was he was like a rock star to me growing up. He just lived up the street, you know. It was, and so I was like. I would just go to his house and like go through his records and be like, what's this? What is, what's who's black flag? Like what's, what's youth of today? You know what I mean? And I know that was annoying to him. Like, and, and both to his credit, you know, he let me hang around and eventually let me join his band, which was very nice of him to do. Yeah. <laughs> that is very nice. Um, and then like you mentioned, you know, by default, you, you know, you were surrounded by a lot of kids starting, you know, hardcore bands and stuff like that. Who was the, um, who was the crew that you were kind of, you know, running around with and the bands that were kind of starting up around that time? It was Pepecki's band. He was in a band early on called Backbone with Aaron Bedard, who went on to be in Bane afterward. Mm -hmm. um, and they were sort of connected to this whole scene that was going on out in Worcester, Worcester, Mass. And... I, there was a church out there called the QBCC and that's like the first show I saw. And there was this, it was like a, it was a Halloween night. It was called ghouls night out. I'll never forget it. It was like, it was such a mix, man. It was like backbone who were like this kind of youth crew meets like leeway type hardcore band. 
and they were friends of mine. And, and then it was like, there was a Misfits cover band. Like, and this is in 1989 too. So it's like not that far removed from the actual Misfits. Sure. And there was like a metal band called, called Crystal Meth. And like the, the singer came out in a coffin. It was just like wild, like totally nuts. And then, and then I started hearing about shows in Boston and I was like 15 at the time. I remember the first hardcore show I heard about was uh, Youth of Today and Slapshot showed up and they were like throwing meat at them on stage. <laughs> it's like, so, so classic. What is this all about? And it was like the, right at the time that those great comps came out, like the Revelation New York hardcore comp had come out and then Boston had their answer to that. Um, and, and Backbone was actually on that. So it was like, you know, I saw, I was lucky, man. I got to see like sick of it all, like a couple weeks after, um, after their, their record came out on profile at, um, at Bun Raddies. And it's just like, it was really, I don't know. I feel at the time you don't know it, but right now I just feel very lucky to have been around all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When, yeah, you, cause at the time you're just existing in it. You don't, you know, there's no perspective there, but then, yeah, when you can look back, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, I can't believe I saw that band or this band. And even if it's something yeah. that's completely inconsequential to most people, you're like, that was a very formative experience watching this band do a cover song or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I love how, you know, I love how sick of it all is like, like they were, they were heroes to me. Like I always loved ACDC and I thought that there was like, I was so sick of it all. It's kind of like the ACDC of the hardcore scene. I don't know why, like something about like just the simplicity of it and the energy and it's just so good. And, you know, and there, we got to tour with them in Castor and Hike, which was like the highlight of being in that band for me. And that they're still, they're still playing. They're still awesome, you know, and they're making a record right now. I just think that's incredible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the machine that keeps on going and they're, yeah, they, they have every right to. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. I am incredibly thrilled to talk to you about this new partner of ours today called the sound of vinyl. It is a new way to collect vinyl records. And for those of you that know, vinyl is the real deal. So it's not just a record store. They have a website with over 20,000 titles for sale, but they also have an amazing recommendation service that can learn about your taste and offer you personalized suggestions of records you'll love. And it works over text message. They'll text you with the vinyl offer. And if you want to buy it, all you do is reply yes. You can even text back with it to chat to a real live human who can help you find the perfect record. They also have an exclusive limited edition colored vinyl to add to your collection. Special edition records from R.E.M., Weezer, The Beach Boys, Kiss, and a ton more. There's no subscription fees and no commitments. Just give it a try. Go to soundofvinyl.com slash words to sign up for their tech service, and then you get $5 off your first record. Again, that's soundofvinyl.com slash words, and then you get 5 bucks off your first record. No joke, I've been doing this now, and I love the service. There are times where it's just like, hey, have you thought about buying Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream, Double LP? And I'm like, yo, I don't have that record. And like, I love that record. Of course, of course I'll do that. So it basically is like a record store clerk following you around being like, hey, have you thought about that record? And I'm like, you know what? No, I haven't. And it's incredible. And they ship it right to your door, gets there quick. I love this service so damn much, and you'll love it too, okay? Soundofvinyl.com slash words, okay? Please do this. You will love it. I love it, okay? Sound of Vinyl. Do it up. How, how did you get kind of um, you know, influenced by the idea of like playing in bands, or was it simply just by you hanging out with all, all of those guys that you, know, you by default play, started playing in bands? Yeah, kind of the default thing. I didn't really... 
I guess in the back of my mind, I wanted to be in a band, but I never really thought I would be, um, even though my father was a musician and I played guitar and I did all this stuff. But I remember when the guys from Backbone were putting together their like next band, or some of them, it was Chris and Dave, the drummer. And I remember just, I remember being really excited about it and like really excited about who they were going to get to sing with them. And, and they, I remember that, you know, it was like gossipy. Everyone's like, who's going to sing in Pepecki's new band? Who's going to be the singer? You know, and it was kind of like, they tried out all these different people and I kind of got wind and none of it worked. None of them really worked. And um, I remember they even like tried to like a gospel singer or something crazy like that. And, and it just, I don't know. I like, I begged them to let me try out and they finally let me. And it wasn't even a thing like you're in the band. It was just like, all right, we'll come, come next week and come to practice and come, come again, come again. And then all of a sudden there was a show booked and then it was like, you play the show. And it's like, okay, I, th- I think I'm in this band now. <laughs> You know, totally. And then it's like, oh God, I'm I'm in a band. Like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and what, like, did you, you know, as you're going through high school and stuff like that, did you have a, a kind of idea in your head of what you wanted to, you know, do with the rest of your life? As they, uh, you know, the guidance counselors ask you. Hmm. Um. Not really. I knew I was interested in politics, and I thought maybe I would do that, but not really knowing much beyond just what I just said, the general sense of that. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't want to be a politician, but it just like interested me. And I thought that might be something I I could go learn about and maybe find a job in. But by the time I got to Northeastern to go to school, Kefner hike was like already a thing. And we were, we were like touring with real bands and it was like, you know, we were, we were about to sign with victory and it was just like, wow, this is like, this, this might be a thing. Maybe I can just be a musician, you know, And, and that kind of, kind of that, road kind of laid out in front of me. Sure. Sure. Did you, did you actually end up graduating college or did you uh, take a sabbatical as you were touring and stuff? Yeah, I'm still on that sabbatical. So I'm perfect, <laughs> like, dude. I love it. I love it. <laughs> bands, um, bands yeah. definitely have the, that, that way of uh, sucking you out of college and being like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll eventually get back to it. Well, maybe not. Right. 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 And we, I mean, we were all doing it. There was like a bunch of us, like big wheel, like Rama and myself, Ronald from Big Wheel, we lived together in this house and there were like, you know, there are always musicians sleeping there. And it was like in Northeastern, they have this thing called co-op where you go and you, you, you work for a semester in the profession that you're pursuing. And, you know, the offer to me was you can go do lights at Bill's bar on Lansdowne street. I'm like, yeah, well I could go on tour with sick of it all. So I think I'm going to do that <laughs> instead. Right. And then you just kind of like, you just kind of get sucked into it and more opportunities kind of like happened and, it just became like, well, I'll get to school again at another, another time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, like you said, especially when you feel like there's momentum and, you know, a lot of the times when you're presented those opportunities at that age, it's, it, you've, there's no way to look at it beyond it's like a now or never sort of thing where it's like, well, when am I going to ever get this opportunity, you know, later in life? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And no. I mean, I kind of agree with that. I mean, that's how I felt for sure. But at the same time we were touring with like Snapcase, and I think the drummer was like becoming a PhD or something like that. And then our drummer too, our drummer, well, it was after we quit our drummer after we quit, he went to Cambridge and got a degree and then he went to Oxford and now he's a professor. So, I mean, we could have made it work, but there was a real kind of like, there was a real drive that we had to kind yeah. of do this and see it through and see how far we could take it. 
Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, yeah. I definitely, <laughs> I meant it more so of the uh, the the myopic idea that it's now or never. Like, when else are you going to have this time to do it? And yeah, right, you, right. yeah. You definitely, <laughs> you definitely can balance the two. Uh, it just, it's sometimes ex- extremely difficult to do. <laughs> um, and so you know, by uh, you know, by you singing for Cast Iron Hike, um, is, is Cast Iron Hike ostensibly your first band that you played in, or did you play in stuff before that? No, it was my first band. And that's that's weird, dude. Like normally, you know, because I mean, even the early Cast Iron Hike stuff, like it's um, it, to me, it always sounded, you know, more mature than probably, you know, most bands when they first start putting out stuff. It just sounded like, you know, confident, I guess. Um, and that's uh, yeah, yeah. That, 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 and that's interesting because most bands don't have that. Well, those guys, like I said, those guys were older and they were they were in bands before. So, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't really like my, it wasn't really my band. I mean, I was kind of, I was the youngest in the band. I was the last to join. I was sort of, for the first part of it, at least I was kind of like, I wasn't in really a position to be (laughs) making any, (laughs) making it sound less mature than it did, you know, thankfully. Um, But, you know, had I started my own band at that time with, with guys my own age, it it probably would have, there probably would have been more warts and it probably would have been more sort of like uh, less refined, I guess. Sure, sure. I mean, it makes sense, especially when you are with older people who, you know, kind of have a clearer vision of what to do. And, but I mean, still, like the fact that you were doing what you were doing vocally, um, you know, that, that takes a air of confidence about, I mean, not like an air of ego. I because sometimes people mix up ego and confidence, you know, but you, you were, you seem pretty confident at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that too is a reflection of, the guys in the band, like they they all kind of knew where they wanted to be and they're all super strong personalities. And it was sort of, you know, that's what you had to do to hang really. It was, it was just kind of, I didn't really know of another way, but at the same time, I didn't know I was being confident or, or whatever either. I was just kind of doing what felt like needed to be done. Right. Right. No, that's true. Like when you are with people who you not only trust, as human beings, but as you trust them as musicians and then, you know, you kind of just like, well, I'm, I'm going to fill my role. I'll, I'll do this to the best right. of my ability. Right. Totally. And did you, um, you know, as you started to play out, experience the whole band life, was it all that you thought it was going to be or what kind of surprised you as you started to, you know, navigate that world? Um, the surprising part of it is positive. It's, you know, there's so much support in the hardcore scene, as you know, and it, it, it never ceased to surprise me. Like you just go show up in a town and, you know, someone has a quicksand shirt on and you know, you're going to bond with them. And next thing you know, you're like sleeping on their couch every time you come to that town. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That, that type of thing was, um, to this day, it still kind of blows my mind. Like we were talking about it earlier. And, but, you know, I mean, it's, I, I guess I was, I, I was curious enough before I was in a band to know that like sort of the cliches and the trappings of being in a band aren't necessarily true. Like I already knew it wasn't going to be glamorous type of thing. I knew kind of what it was going to be because I grew up listening to the Ramones and Fugazi and all that other stuff. Like you kind of already have a picture, like those guys kind of like prepared us for what the reality of it was going to be. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good that you had that you know, that exposure. I mean, I think anybody that starts going to shows and, you know, eventually plays in a band, most people, I mean, especially of that era and time frame, 
don't have any illusions of grandeur that they're going to be in a tour bus immediately or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. The, um, and so, you know, and did you like touring initially? And that was that something that you kind of took to? I loved it. I loved traveling and getting to see America, you know, like I, I never really, I mean, Castor and Hike, we went kind of everywhere. Um, and then after that, I did that in other bands as well. Um, I think, you know, you're young and you're undisciplined and you're all over the place. Like I, I could have done it in a way that would have made it easier on myself and maybe a little bit more enjoyable. Um, you know, touring's tough. Like I have no desire to do that ever again in my life. Like it, it's, it's, and I have complete respect and, and awe of, of people who do do it continuously, especially at the age we're at now where we're a little bit older and people do it with families and, and that takes a lot, you know? Um, but I mean, yeah, at the time I enjoyed it, and, but really kind of like getting out of Boston and getting out of the Northeast and being able to like just come in contact with different people and different cultures and different types of music. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and did you, you know, because Cast Iron Hike worked with, uh, you know, a lot of different labels from, you know, Big Wheel and, and Trustkill and then eventually Victory, um, but did the, I guess, music business side of things uh, appeal to you or was that something that you, um, you know, were active in as far as making decisions with the band, but you would rather, you know, I guess, stay on the sidelines uh, from the whole, you know, label negotiation standpoint and, you know, working on merch and stuff like that. Um, you know, where, do, what role did you fill from that perspective in the band? I think I wanted, I was curious about it to the extent that I, I wanted to know enough to take advantage of opportunities that were there for us in the right way and also to not get screwed over. And, but I didn't really have a taste for it. Like I, I have friends who are in the music industry and they, they love it and they love, they love the whole thing. And I don't, I consider myself entrepreneurial, but I don't consider myself a fan of the music industry, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely wore, wore part of that, um, that jacket, but a, a couple of us did in the band and it kind of went back and forth. Like, I was that interested in merch, um, in the design and the art and all that. And that was more pecky and, you know, the, dealing with labels, I didn't really have a taste for it, but I was sort of the guy who was out front. So I was kind of like talking to those guys. I was the one talking to Tony and I was the one talking to these other labels, but it wasn't something that I was like, I'm going to go work for a record label after this, you know, that, that didn't appeal to me. Right, right, right. Um, and how, like, how, how did you know that you could sing? Like, you know, cause that like clearly, you know, even though Cast Iron Hike was definitely a, a band in the hardcore scene, um, you know, most bands and most vocalists, uh, you know, scream. <laughs> and so like, when did you, Yeah. did you uh, like, was it literally like they just kind of first practice like, Oh, let's see how, let's, let's see how Jake does. Um, and how you, how Kinda, you I mean, I, okay. I, I've been messing around like in my bedroom playing ACDC songs and on guitar and that sort of thing. And I, I know it's going to sound stupid, but. You know, I grew up just thinking that like any, anyone could sing. And I kind of still think that way. I think, you know, just, just the, the voice, just your voice being spoken, it put to music with a chord progression under it. <laughs> it can sound incredibly vulnerable and compelling and interesting. And I mean, you know, Jeff Tweedy's made a living at it. You know, there's a lot of people out there who think that singing has to be like this, this big effort, you know, like this big to do. And, and I don't know, I never really came at it that way. I just kind of came at it as like, I'm going to open my mouth and see what comes out. And those guys were playing with like half stacks, Marshall half stacks. So I had to kind of yell and be loud and 
figure out a way to make that work. And I didn't really know how to scream all the time type of thing. Like I just heard melodies in a different way that I don't know. I mean, it just, it was a very organic and kind of natural thing that to this day, I still try and follow. I don't try to think about it too much. Yeah, no, it's, it's cool because I, I think because of that, you know, it puts like we were joking about earlier. Well, I mean, not joking, but, you know, telling the truth about the fact that people either got cast iron hike or they didn't. And I think, you know, a lot of that is due to the vocal approach where, you know, people might be like, oh, yeah, the music is sick. But like, dude, he's just crooning over this or like, what? what, what, yeah. what, what? Yeah. But but I think because of that, you know, it, it makes you stand out in, uh, you know, a way that forces people to reckon with the band and the music. Um, in a, you know, like you don't fall into that middle ground where, you know, frankly, many bands fall of like, they're like, mm. oh yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Like, it's not bad, but it's, right. it doesn't inspire a reaction. That's death to me. I don't, it's boring. You know, like I'd rather be, I'd rather, I'd rather just inspire some sort of take on it than just the middle of the road. Yeah. That's, I, I like that. Inspiring takes. That's true. That's, that's a very good way of framing it. <laughs> um, and so like, how did you guys, um, you know, e- even get hooked up with, uh, victory in the first place? I mean, I know victory was, you know, clearly very active in signing, you know, a ton of bands, uh, during that era. Um, but you know, you, you guys were definitely, you know, left of center with uh, a lot of the stuff that they were, you know, putting out and signing at the time, even though they were putting out, you know, really, uh, progressive bands like, you know, guilt and, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call them progressive, but like, you know, yeah, high, high, high five. Yeah. Yeah, hi-fi, and they had, I mean, even integrity was kind of weird for them for at the time. True. I, I guess, because they were such, they were just such their own thing. Um, but the answer to your question is Snapcase. Snapcase really kind of rode hard for Cast Iron Hike, and they got Tony to pay attention to us. And then I met Tony outside of Wetlands in New York after a show. I think we played with Warzone, maybe. Um and we just started talking and got on and it was like, yeah, maybe we'll do something with you guys. And, and at the time we were talking to revelation as well for a hot minute. So it was kind of like, you know, you know, how those moments kind of happen and, you know, people are interested and then it just, you know, someone makes a move and you end up working with them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's uh, I appreciate the detail of, of rev. Cause that definitely, uh, yeah, that would have been so different if you guys would have ended up working with Rev because, you know, stylistically, they had a little bit more uh, similarities to what you guys were doing, you know, whether it's like, you know, Sensefield, Farside, like all that stuff that was happening at that time. Like, you know, you could put more in your bucket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I remember we talked to, I think it was John from Revelation and it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really like, Oh, we're going to sign you. It was, it was kind of like a kick the tires type of thing. And he's a really nice guy. I remember we were also like Walter from quicksand had a label. Oh, um, some, that some. He was starting some records yet yeah, with Pincus and, Oh man, I remember Walter called and left a message on my voicemail and I saved that voicemail for like three years. <laughs> That's amazing. Such a fanboy. Um, but once I, to Tony, to Tony's from victory's credit, once, um, he got wind that other people were interested. Like he, he flew out to see his play in Boston and he kind of like just put it together like pretty quickly. And we wanted to go make a record like a, and go into a studio and with our friend Brian and, and, and Ken from damnation and do this thing. So it was like, 
okay, let's go do it. And then it kind of just happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you see that happen a lot of times in the industry where, you know, uh, multiple labels start sniffing around in a band and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody comes out of the woodwork is interested in the band, but then, you know, it's only the people who have been like, Oh, I, I've, I've been here and I'm ready. Here's, here's a deal. Like, let's go ahead and do this. Like, you know, those are the ones who yeah. get it done. Heck yes. I get to talk about one of my favorite partners of the show and that is Casper. What are they? They're a mattress company, but they're a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. They got three models now. They have the Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. Their mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. That's why I say every night when I get into bed, I'm like, natural geometry. But no joke, I love these things. Not to mention, their breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small... I don't believe they can fit that in their sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. And they have an incredible 100-night guarantee. It's risk-free. You sleep on it. If you don't like it for whatever reason, which you're crazy if you don't, you can ship it back. So no risk. And then you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Like I said, I Casper is unbelievable i every night that i get into bed i'm like oh dude this is the best this is the best and i hope that you are saying that about your own casper mattress and if you don't have a casper mattress you're probably not saying that okay so i want you to get 50 dollars towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash words and then using the code words at checkout that's casper.com slash words offer code words and i am giving you 50 dollars off your best mattress ever purchase Terms and conditions, of course, apply. But please go do that. Casper.com slash words, offer code words, $50 off. You'll be sleeping so much better and you'll be thanking me. Okay. Now on with the show. I remember too, uh, you know, this, <laughs> there was, you know, you, <clears throat> the Watch It Burn LP, you know, still like listening to it to this day, sonically, um, whether or not you like the music at all sonically it stands up like you know you can hear it and be like oh yeah it sounds like it came out last year it's like oh no that came out in like you know 97 it's like what that doesn't make any sense huh. uh, but <laughs> but then i just always remember hearing you know the 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 you know hardcore game of telephone where it's like oh yeah cast iron hike like they recorded this lp like out in the middle of the woods you know like <laughs> i just remember hearing all these like weird not rumors but just you know people talking about like oh yeah cast iron hike was a weird band so you know they went in the middle of the woods and recorded in vermont or something like that um but oh, the, God, the, I wish. No, yeah, but there's, there's fucking there's, Stoughton. Like, it's basically like just south of Chinatown, man. It's, it's, that's it's what I thought. Right, right. That's yeah. what I, that's what I thought. But I just I just loved it, I, and I I thought you would have a, a a entertaining take on that that idea of um because people defined you as a weird band that you know weird uh stories perpetuated about the fact that like oh Cast Iron Hike was just like yeah these weirdos from Boston decided to record in the middle of the woods or whatever. I wish. I kind of like that. I kind of like the rumor mill, though. I like that story. <laughs> yeah, keep that going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you and you guys, you know, had a lot of commercial appeal as far as the fact that a lot of that stuff at the time is when you know major labels were still sniffing around the independent music music community. You know, from you know, sure. like Texas the Reason, all that other stuff. Um, you know, did you guys have uh, kind of whiffs of that from that perspective, or did you guys um, kind of you know do your your best to um, I guess just kind of navigate away from that. Uh, no, we, we, we had dinner a couple, I think there was one dinner we had with a major label in New York. Um, and there was some interest, but it wasn't really anything that we kind of cultivated. We knew we wanted to be 
on an independent label. And we kind of knew the two that we wanted to be on. Um, so it was, and we had friends who were on majors and we didn't like, you know, obviously no will. I mean, there's, you know, those quicksand full lengths, well, not slips, slips on revelation, right? The first one. Uh, so those, you know, no, sli- great- the first, the first EP was on rev. And then I think they the went EP to, yeah, they, they went to Polydor, then they went to Island or whatever. Polydor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my point, I mean, just like, you know, great records are being made on major level labels by heavy bands back then. So it wasn't like a, a stance against it. It was just, we thought that we would have been better off on an indie for whatever reason. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. Um, I don't know if we were right, by the way. Well, no, I, yeah, you totally, yeah, you never know at the end of the day. Um, once you decide to go down a path, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's not like, there are a ton of bands that you can point to of that era that were successful in navigating the, you know, major label music world that, um, you know, probably would look back and be like, Oh yeah, if we made this decision, we probably would have ended up, you know, in a better spot or whatever. But yeah, (laughs) hindsight's 2020. Um, and then, you know, as, uh, I don't even know why. Why did Cast Iron Hike break up? I know that sounds like such a you know base question, but you know why did you guys kind of you know call it a day? Well, I really just wanted to do other types of music at the time, and I didn't. It was we were just pushing up against the limits of like creatively what we were willing to do with one another, and I just felt like I was butting my head against the wall over and over again, and it was just becoming it was becoming not fun. And there was a lot of stuff that was going on with, you know, me personally that, you know, I kind of wanted to go back to school. I wanted to do these other things. And it was such a hyper intense couple of years, even though, you know, we were all in it a hundred percent and emotionally wrapped up in it. And in hindsight, it was probably an emotional decision that I made but it's not necessarily one that I regret. Like I went on to go and have these other experiences, both creatively and professionally that I'm very lucky to have had. Um, but I was just, the short answer is I just wanted to do, do other stuff creatively and otherwise. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like I, I ended up quitting. Sure. T- tough to, uh, tough to go on without a lead singer of a band. It's always a, always a tough replacement. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they could have, I mean, I actually think they could have, I mean, there was, like you said, I mean, we spent a lot of this conversation talking about how the, the vocals were kind of the, the aberration, you know, like I think if Chris sang or if they got someone who was like more of a screamer, like they could have, they could have definitely, definitely kept going. But writing was like, writing was just really hard for us. It was really difficult. We didn't, we didn't write a lot of songs and I wanted to, when I say I wanted to do different things creatively, I don't necessarily mean I wanted to like, go be in a hip hop band or anything like that. I just knew that I wanted to like try more stuff and not even put it out, but just try and like fail even, you know, even just amongst ourselves, like let's just do more stuff. And it just became harder and harder to do that for, for a bunch of reasons. And nobody's really a fault. We were all kind of in it. We're all kind of doing our own thing and living in different cities in a lot of cases for uh, the end of the period there. But it was just a matter of like, I just wanted to be doing more and and trying stuff sure um and then you you played in uh, bodega girls after that like uh, w- that happened like many years after that or how how long in secession oh that was a long time after so That's after cast and hike i 
I got involved in like, this is sort of like the pre Americana thing, but I got, in, I was just obsessed with honky tonk music and country music and American music. And I put out a record on Yep Rock Records and I got to tour and go to Europe. And, you know, I made a record that John Doe from X was generous enough to play on. And, and then, then Bodega Girls came after that. Got and that it. was sort of, Bodega Girls was like, it was never supposed to be a band. It was just supposed to be like a studio thing. And, and it was like, I had no desire to go play and play in shows. And then we ended up, um, we ended up getting a song on that TV show entourage. And then we got show offers and there was like a spin article and it was like, well, I guess I'm in a band again. And we kind of like we did our best to make it as fun as possible. And it was, it was a blast. Like, we didn't play clubs. It was like, okay, if we're going to play live. We're only going to play like parties or basements, or we'll play like a, a bar that doesn't have a stage or doesn't have music ever, you know, like that type of stuff and kind of like make it more of a scene than actually like a, a show type of thing. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You're like, what's the most unconventional approach that we can take with this? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you're doing it for so long, you have to find a way to kind of like keep yourself entertained and, you know, lugging my amp into the Middle East for the thousand times is not that exciting. <laughs> yeah, you know? the, the the upstairs of the Middle East is not an easy load in. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier than downstairs, though. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um and then like, did you, you know, usually in the context of, of playing bands and, you know, when you're transitioning from, you know, one music project to the other and they, you know, they, one, one has varying success and, you know, other, others define you stronger than, you know, other projects. Um, like, you know, how did you kind of navigate the sort of, um, you know, the ego that can sometimes creep into, you know, when you are, you know, standing in front of, you know, 500 people at the Middle East or whatever, you know, playing a show and then, um, you know, doing like you were saying, the Bodega Girls was essentially just like a studio project. Like, did you always kind of have a, a healthy perspective on, you know, how you were navigating all this? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really, neither of those projects were necessarily bigger or smaller than the other, if that makes sense. Like they all kind of had the same reach and exposure, bigger in some ways, smaller in some ways. So it was never like, after Cast Iron Hike, I never felt like I wasn't in a band that was as big as Cast Iron Hike, like actually quite the opposite. But then then the reverse of that too, if that makes sense, you know, because sometimes you find yourself in Utrecht in the middle of the Netherlands playing to, you know, 250 people who know every word to every song you've written, you know, and you're like, well, who are these people? You know, how did this even happen? You know? And then, and, you know, you have, you know, you wake up from a fever dream of you playing the warp tour with cast and hike in front of, you know, however many thousands of people that was, but it just all kind of seemed like it was kind of in the same, um, same sort of stratosphere type of thing. So ego didn't really, didn't really creep, creep into it and again like growing up in the punk and hardcore scene like you know the ego part of it the, or at least the selfish ego part of it you can't really it doesn't really jive it's you're not really allowed to sort of be on that trip you know so i, I didn't really carry that into these other worlds with me yeah no th- that's cool i mean I, I i know that it sometimes due to uh, youth, it's hard to separate, you know, the, your intrinsic value as a human being and your value by whatever artistic output you're doing. 
And so, um, yeah, it's cool that you were able to, you know, see that and directly apply to the fact like, oh, I'm not, I'm not buying it, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the ego stuff of right. the, the rock star mentality or whatever. Right. Right. I mean, the funny thing is, is that now with the podcast, like more people have heard me through Disgraceland, like totally right. than all of my bands together. And, and that's in the last five weeks that blows my mind that like talk about an ego trip. And I don't mean in a bad way. I don't mean in like a selfish way. I mean, like it's, it's humbling in this bizarre way. It's like, it's like, how did this, how did that happen? You know what I mean? You spend a lifetime playing in bands and lugging an amp up on stage to play in front of people and, and sweating, selling demos out of the back of your van and at merch tables. And then you, you know, you send an RSS feed out into the world and all of a sudden like <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people are paying attention <laughs> right. in one shot. It's just like, what the hell just happened? Totally. Crazy. Totally. Yeah. You're like, dude, I've been doing this all wrong, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all this. I should put my RSS feed out on victory. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Um, I, I also like the, you know, kind of just tracing your trajectory. You know, you've always been, uh, navigating the, you know, creative world, um, you know, in all the, like you were saying, the, the music that you were contributing and you've always just wanted to, it seems to me, you know, contribute in a creative way to a, a variety of different, you know, either it's organizations or, you know, work with agencies or whatever. Um, I, I'm going to guess that that sort, the sort of principles that, you know, you've built your life around as far as, you know, the DIY mentality and what we've been talking about, um, is is basically what you hold dear and what kind of remains consistent as you go through all these kind of creative things. A hundred percent. And it's sort of the unfair advantage that I feel like I have when I'm in a room sometimes with a bunch of people who it, being in from the punk and hardcore scene, the DIY scene or whatever you want to call it, it's really kind of, it's given me this, you talk about confidence earlier, it's given me this confidence where I don't, I walk into a room and I just feel like I can figure this out. It doesn't matter what it is. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be able to figure it out. And like podcasting was one of those rooms. It was like, I don't know anything about this, <laughs> right? but I, I can figure it, I can figure it out, you know? And I feel like, uh, you know, that's happening all over in tons of industries with punk and hardcore kids who have just gone on. They've taken that ethos and they've just applied it to whatever they're doing and, and they've been able to figure it out. And it's, it's, uh, it's, I feel really, really lucky to have been part of that world and to have been able to like kind of pick up and, on that stuff and take it with me. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, it's two, two people talking back and forth to each other about how, you know, beautiful the DIY scene is. But I, I do think there is that element of, and not even like, because, you know, you hear many entrepreneurs giving the advice of like the, you know, fake it till you make it sort of scenario. And I think what kind of differentiates that idea with the DIY mentality of, you know, the punk and hardcore scene is that like, there is an element of that, a nugget of that. But then I think the, the, the notion of just like, oh, well, well uh, like I'll, I'll figure, I'll figure this out. And, it, and not from a um, sort of, you know, ego-driven standpoint where you're just like, oh, I need to act confident and portray this, you know, this, this pillar of strength as I walk through this. You, you could be like, well, I don't know how to do this, but I can figure it out. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you, cause you can't fake it in the hardcore scene or the punk scene. You, you can't. And the other beautiful thing is you can, at least the original tenets of punk rock, like that, that show I mentioned earlier that I went to in that church was the first show I went to. I mean, that was like, there's so many different personalities there. And the one thing that everyone had in common was they were outcasts. 
you know, as different as they were from each other, they were all bound by this thing of just being weirdos, you know? So it's like, there's not really a need to fake it in the hardcore world. There's really just the make it part of the equation. You know what I mean? Because no one's going to put up with you faking it. They're just not going to do it. So it's either put up or, or shut up or you, you just put up or go away. You know? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Contribute elsewhere. Right. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we, we don't, we don't really need you here. It's okay. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and not in an elitist standpoint, but just like, in a no, it's okay. You don't need, like, you can find your, you know, your ego stroking elsewhere or whatever. Um, right. The, uh, you know, you, you also, last, like, two things I want to hit on was the notion of, uh, and I'm sure now that you're more, you know, getting more experience within uh, the context of the podcast world, the uh, similarities between, you know, starting a band and starting a podcast are you know, pretty, pretty analogous. Like I, I see that often and I've told people that before. Um, do you kind of notice the similarities as well? I do. Um, but I notice that in anything that's sort of entrepreneurial, um, maybe from, you know, when I started this, I, I had the notion that I would do it with some friends and it would be kind of like, you were all in the band type of thing. And we kind of, we kind of went down that road for a little bit, but you know, you're older and everyone's got stuff pulling them in different directions. And then it became about, well, if I want to, do this for real i have to do it on my like totally on my own um for the most part at least there was a period there in the beginning where it was just me and so i designed it and i built it so that i could do it just on my own just by myself and that's not really analogous to being in a band but then you kind of like you, you know you go into the, the woodshed and you make this thing and then you kind of you peek your head out and you start to show it to people and then you realize that there's this whole, there's a whole scene there as well, you know, and it's very supportive and, and that's analogous to being in a band, but now it's different. It's all digital. It's all online. It's not like VFW halls and merch tables. It's, it's, you know, the true crime community on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> yeah, it's totally different, but it's still analogous in that way. Um, but the creative side of it wasn't really analogous to me to, to being in a band. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a very important distinction and point. Um, I, I think the, the other sort of analogous, you know, a kind of A to B scenario is that, you know, not, you don't have to ask permission to, you know, start a band in the same way that you don't have to ask permission to, you know, start a podcast. I mean, if you're doing right. it, you know, if you're doing it from a, I have large expectations. This is, you know, this is going to be my career sort of thing. Then yes, of course you need to approach it in a different way than just like, Oh, whatever. I'll just plug a mic into my computer and figure it out from there. Um, but yeah. But you know what? It's the same. If you have a point of view, you have something to say and you just go out there and do it. You know what I mean? Like make something and then you can figure out all that other stuff. I mean, that was the thing about being in a band. It's like, let's just go make a great, fucking demo let's go play a great show and then it's like let's go to let's go to boston and play a good show let's go to buffalo and play good. and then sooner or later all that as you know all that other stuff kind of builds up around you and you're right that is analogous to the podcasting world if you just get into it and start doing it and do something cool that other stuff will kind of find its way to you yeah oh definitely definitely um and the, the last thing i want to hit on was the you know you've uh you are a, a recent father you are like i mean like you're only like a, a couple weeks into it aren't you yeah, but this is my second second boy, so it's oh. not as terrifying. Okay, yeah. For so, for some reason, I thought this was your your firstborn. Oh, that's oh, that's right. No, I think I uh, I think I lurked your Instagram and I see that you do have an older child. But um, yeah. the you know I'm always yeah, interested. Thirty. <laughs> yeah, <No>. yeah. Sure. <laughs> thirty. <laughs> I like that. He's um, four. He's four. He's four. 
yeah i mean i i'm i i have a six-year-old and so i'm always um you know, I'm always interested in people that, you know, have come from our community and then, you know, have children and kind of the, the perspective in which you are raising this, you know, next generation is, you know, different than clearly what our parents did with us and stuff like that. Um, you know, how does the idea Mm -hmm. of the, you know, the sort of, you know, punk rock rebellious nature that, you know, you are used to, um, how does that kind of shake around in your head as you are, you know, navigating uh, fatherhood life? Um, I, I think I'll, I think, you know, like I said, I don't know if I told you this, this, this morning or if it was another conversation I was having, you know, it's funny, like the idea for Disgraceland comes from punk rock. It comes from reading. Literally, I had just had my first son and I was, um, reading Legs McNeil's book, Please Kill Me. And it, did I, did we talk about this already or am I? No, no, dude, you, you, you're fine. We have not talked about yeah, this. Yeah. So I'm reading that book and I've got like a, you know, seven pound baby on my chest and I'm reading about Iggy pop and Lou Reed and, and the Ramones and all these guys and these amazing stories, but they're all behaving like complete lunatics and very badly. And in that, all I could think of as a new dad was like, I don't want my kid anywhere near people like this, you know? And I'm like, but these are my heroes. <laughs> these, so that, that sort of tension and reconciling those two things is what kind of led me down the rabbit hole to Disgraceland in a podcast that's about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Um, but it's sort of, so it kind of started like being a father kind of inspired that, I guess. And I, you know, I don't know. I want, I, I want my kid to rebel, but you know, my kids are not going to be able to rebel by listening to the Ramones. You know, <laughs> right. I don't know what it's going to, I don't know what it's going to be. You know, it's fascinating to me. I think about it all the time. Like what, what's this thing going to be? Like, how's he going to, how's he going to like stick the dagger in his dad's back? You know, like what, what is he, how's he going to twist it when he's a teenager? What's that thing going to be? Right. And I don't know. It's fascinating. It'll be something, but it's, it's weird now. There's not, unlike it was when we were growing up, we don't have that generation gap with our kids. And that's just the world we live in now. Like, I mean, my kid will probably be in the same exact music that I'm into. Whereas even though my dad was a musician, there was still stuff just generationally that like he didn't vibe on and still doesn't. And definitely with my mom, you know, it's like she wasn't into anything I was into. So I don't know, man, it's, it's a new world. I have no idea. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree. And maybe just because I'm, I'm fascinated with this myself that I do, like I almost, I, I pay such close attention to what is happening sort of, you know, from a pop culture or, you know, youth movement perspective where it's like, I, I am constantly trying to think <clears throat> about what my kid could potentially bring home that could uh, throw me off. You know, like th- I, yeah. I joke, I joke around about this with friends where it's like, he could come home, um, you know, when he's, when he's 11 years old and be, you know, in total, you know, ICP insane clown posse face paint and be a juggalo. But I would be like, I dude, I, I know that scene. Like, you know, I I've been to an insane clown posse show and like, there's that touchstone where you, you have an experience of it and you, you understand where they're coming from. And so like, I'm always trying to, uh, you know, navigate that idea of just like, all right, what, you know, if him bringing home, you know, the new generation of, you know, SoundCloud emo rap, like with, you know, dudes with, you know, face tattoos, like in places that, you know, right. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I, I am, I'm, I'm with you where it's like, I, I'm just really interested to see how that, um, 
rebellion manifests itself or cut, you know, on the opposite side of things where it's like, it's not like that at all. Like, you know, like our kids are just going to be like, they're going to see our stuff and they're going to be like, okay, that's fine. Like I'm not into dad's, you know, yelling aggressive music and I'm going to be like into show tunes, you know? And like, (laughs) you know, and that, that, that's also cool too, where it's just like, oh, it's the swing back to, you know, the 1950s as far as like, you know, vanilla taste or concern or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. It's going to be wild, man. No idea. It's yeah. interesting though. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. But, uh, Jake, thanks for hanging dude. This has been super fun for me and I really, uh, appreciate you going into, uh, into depth about your life and all the creative stuff you've done. Awesome. Ray, thanks so much, man. I really enjoyed talking to you and can't wait to listen to more of the podcast. Okay. That is Jake. And please, like I said, listen to his podcast, Disgraceland. It is really, really, really good. Comes out twice a month. Just a, just a beautiful, beautiful piece of audio journalism. Okay. That's what I'm calling it. But thank you very much, Jake, for coming on the show. And what do I got next week? I have, this is what I would like to call a, you know, uh, undiscovered spotlight band. You know, I I do those occasionally where it's like, you may not have heard of the band, but you should listen to the band. Okay. And that is Dan Butler from a band called Loom, L-U-M-E. They just put out a record on Equal Vision. It's really, really good. It's this interesting combination of like sort of, you know, ISIS droney metal stuff, but then it's not that heavy. It kind of reminds me of this band from the Midwest called Native. They just have a lot of cool rock, indie rock slash some hardcore, some metal stuff going on. It's just a really, really, really good band. And I can't recommend you listening to them more. So that's why I wanted to have Dan on the show. And we actually, we had a connection from a, we met a long time ago and I just was excited to have him on. So that's what we got next week. And, uh, I hope that whatever you're doing, you're doing it safely. I hope that summer is treating you appropriately. Get outside. Okay. Soak in the sun, get some vitamin D, uh, not too much though. Cause you don't want to get burnt. And, um, as you are listening to this, I'm going to be in Legoland. So, Hey, <laughs> all right. I'm enjoying Legoland and hopefully you're enjoying something too. All right. Until next week, be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.